Welcome to Full Life FM. I'm your host, Emily Tim. I'm a registered dietitian, content creator, and feminist on a mission to help women live their fullest lives. I've worked with thousands of women with PCOS and other endocrine conditions to optimize metabolic, reproductive, and mental health. I'm passionate about approachable, evidence-based nutrition, intentional living, and the Mediterranean diet and lifestyle. Each week, we'll bring you new episodes and guest interviews to inspire, empower, and educate on what it really means to be healthy. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review. And if you're ready to do health together, I'd love to have you in my membership community, the Full Life Society. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am here with Dr. Thongadu. She is a board-certified endocrinologist, and we're excited to have a conversation today. This is actually my first time ever sitting down with Dr. T. Um, so I'm just going to you know, get to know her in real time with you guys, and we're going to have a casual conversation that I'm sure is going to provide a lot of value and um, a lot of inspiration and insight. So Dr. T, if you want to just kind of introduce yourself and, you know, let me know, let, let everybody know um, what you do, where you, where you practice and kind of how you got there and what your passions are, that would be awesome. Yeah, of course. And thank you so much for having me, Emily. I'm so happy to be here and really looking forward to getting to know you as well. Um, so I'm an endocrinologist, like you said, and we have some overlap in that we both spent some time at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Um, that's where I did my endocrinology fellowship. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And then I'm also board certified in lifestyle medicine. And so I used to practice in like a traditional uh, private practice after I finished my training for a few years. And then in 2019, I decided to start my own practice because I just felt like um, I wanted to have relationships with my patients and build um, relationships that could actually get them to better health. You know, in medicine, we have this idea of um, management, you know, chronic diseases um, should be managed. And <clears throat> as an endocrinologist, a lot of the things that I treat are chronic metabolic diseases, diabetes, PCOS, um, obesity, thyroid disease. And what I learned um, early in practice was management isn't enough. Like we need to help people get better and live their best lives. And we have the opportunity to transform the trajectory of their health and, and their lives and their mindset and all of those things as healthcare providers and the traditional insurance model just gives us such little time that we can't really build the relationships um, and give patients the education and support they need. So I I left um, traditional private practice in 2019 and had a lot of life changes at that time too, had a, a lifestyle transformation of my own. And I started a direct care endocrinology practice. It was basically unheard of at that time, but now it seems like more endocrinologists are warming up to the idea. I know you had Sandra Sobel on mm -hmm. earlier and she has a similar practice. She was actually my attending and fellowship. And then I got to mentor her as she started her own practice. So it was really wow. cool. Yeah. And so um started my own my own practice just a couple years out of training. Um and it's been amazing. I've, I've really been able to have that relationship-based um, approach to endocrinology that I wanted and that I feel is so important. And um, I think even in the last 
three years, that approach has been validated over and over. And with the pandemic, people really recognize the importance of having access to their doctor and um, the relationship and the importance of, of lifestyle and all of those things. So um, I think the world has kind of warmed up to something that I thought um, a, a few years ago. And um, yeah, so that's what I do. And then on social media to educate on a larger scale. I have a YouTube channel. I, I really love the communication aspect of medicine. And I really got... Um, I really got started on social media because I just saw so much hormonal misinformation. Right. And I feel like as physicians, we are so stuck in the clinic or we're told to have hold our patients at a distance or not overshare. And we're all kind of trained that way. And, you know, when you have a relationship with a patient, it's not just the patient has to give, you've got to give a little bit of your personality too. It's not, not that you overshare necessarily, but like it takes two to build a relationship. Um, but also we've been told to like, not put anything on our social media to shy away from that because of, you know, it's not professional. And I think obviously, yeah, you can be super unprofessional <laughs> online and you don't want to do that. But at the same time, you know, if we as people who are actually trained in health and medicine are not putting any information out there and the only information our patients can get are from people who don't have any medical training and don't know what they may not know, then we put our patients in a dangerous situation of only having access to misinformation and having no access to, to good information. So that's why I started on social media. And so wow. I do and um, while practicing telemedicine for patients all over Texas. Wow. Oh my gosh. I, um, I loved listening to your story and I feel like there's so many conversations I want to have with you. Like the conversation around um, medical professionals going online, I think is such a fascinating one. We could have like a whole episode on that. <laughs> yeah, sure. But I'm, I'm glad that you said that though, because I think that is really like the future of, of healthcare. Like I believe the future of public health is actually social media. Um, cause it's, you know, it's the most, most, the biggest spot that people go for their health information now has the biggest opportunity there. And like our, we don't really do public health in the U S like, I mean, we just, we don't. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that you're on. <laughs> yeah, same to you. Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's so, so true. Um, I also love what you said about like how in traditional healthcare, it's all about management, but you wanted to go beyond that with your patients and really take like a full holistic kind of full life approach, full health approach. Um, and in your private practice, you, you work, um, in Texas. So you're, you can only see patients in Texas, correct? I just wanted to know for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Patients have to be physically in Texas for their first visit okay. um, because of medical licensing. Okay. I'm hopeful that, you know, it's interesting to me because you can train anywhere in the United States and, and the medicine is, you know, fairly standardized across the United States and, you know, the guidelines are worldwide guidelines. 
so it's not the actual medicine. It's just, it's a legal issue of, of practicing out of state. So right. now with so much telemedicine, especially with the pandemic, I'm hopeful that maybe um, there might be some laxity in that, but mm-hmm. it's really tough. I, I've really thought about licensing in other states because, you know, there's so many people who reach out to me from so many different right. states who want to be seen and they need to be seen. And I have to sort of turn them away um, but it's really annoying. I'm just kind of saying this because of just so people understand, it's really annoying for a doctor to license in other states. Like it one, it's it's costly, but two, you have to do all this information, like you have to do all this yearly re-registration of your license. You have to um sometimes take extra tests, you have to um make sure you're in compliance with that medical board. And so since I'm so busy in Texas, I just um, haven't felt like it was worth my time and energy to, to deal with that. But I do want to take care of patients all over the country. I'm not trying to kick you out of my clinic, but um, hopefully, hopefully um, there'll be opportunities to do that in different ways. Definitely. I mean, I'm one. is there any type of network or funds, um, direct care uh endocrinologists that kind of like connect and refer patients? So we have a group of us. Um, and now there's like, there's some people who are kind of interested in it. I don't know how many director endos there are in, in the state. I would guess that there's probably around, it's, it's going to be a really abysmally low number. Cause there's like 40 people in our group, our, our little Facebook group, I think. And those are, some of those are like people thinking about it. So probably maybe like 20, I would say in the United States, Wow, um, not less than that. Um, some people have like hybrid models, but even fewer who are focused on lifestyle medicine. Right. Um, so it really depends on what your what the patient is looking for and what they need, but yeah, it's, it's, t- it's tough to find, but my hope is that as some of us start doing it and can demonstrate that it's a viable practice model and that patients like it and need it more excited to do it. That's incredible. I can't even believe I had both you and Sandra, two direct care practice endocrinologists (laughs) on this podcast who are doing incredible things. Um, And so tell me about your, your practice. Like, what do you, what do you think about when you see somebody for the first time Um, Do you do any like referrals? What kind of conversations do you like to have? Um, Basically, like if somebody walks in your doors, um, what's what's your approach? Yeah, so I use that first visit to try to get to know the patient as much as I can and not just to know their medical problem, but to know them, their values, their goals, you know, who they are and what they need to get out of our relationship. Because, you know, a patient is walking around for probably 5, 10, 15, 20, their whole life with some of the issues that they come to me with. But that first visit, you know, I'm, I'm just catching up with them. So I tell, I always tell my patients, you know, what we're going to do is we're, I'm going to take a really detailed history. We're going to talk about, about all the things that brought you here to me Um, And then we'll talk about your day-to-day life because you've been living with this problem for a long time. And I, I need to learn you before I can even um, have the audacity to tell you what I think about what's going on. Right. Cause I think a lot of the times people go to the doctor and they don't feel heard. Right. They just feel like the doctor is just kind of not, doesn't really know them. And they're kind of spitting solutions at them and they 
don't really understand the depth or breadth of, of their issue and, and people feel very dismissed. And that's the last thing I want for, for my patients or anybody really, because um, people deserve to be heard and you can't really take care of a person when you don't spend that time to definitely. Um, um, and do you see a lot of uh, women with PCOS in your practice? I do. I see a lot of women with PCOS and um, you probably know this statistic, but there's a massive delay in diagnosis. The statistic says two years, but I think wow. it's way more than that. Um, I see so many women who they're not necessarily coming in for PCOS, but we do a clinical history, you know, and I'm like, did anyone ever tell you you have PCOS? <laughs> because um, more than likely you do. And sometimes you can diagnose uh, PCOS with just a clinical history because um, you don't necessarily always need labs to diagnose it. Like if somebody has symptoms of hyperandrogenism, I'm not, I know you're, I'm, I'm not saying this for you, but for those listeners, yeah, definitely hyperandrogenism and oligomenorrhea, I mean, that person has PCOS. <laughs> and so and so if they're having like male pattern hair growth, their hair loss or any, any, any symptoms like that, and they're having irregular periods while well, we're dealing with PCOS and um, some of these women come in struggling with a lot of other symptoms, you know, difficulty with weight loss, insulin resistance, those types of things, and they've never been given a diagnosis. And I think, um, you know, I am not about giving uh, like pathologizing normal, giving people diagnoses that aren't real diagnoses. But when you are able to find a, a solid diagnosis for a patient, I think it gives them a lot of validation and peace uh, uh, over their symptoms that, okay, this is really something that's going on. And then that gives them the motivation to, okay, well, how can we move on to the next steps in addressing this? Whereas, you know, if you tell them, well, your labs look fine and there's nothing wrong with you. Um, well, that's not true. If a patient has symptoms, even if their labs are all normal, they're not fine. Like you still have them. And I think a lot of patients in the endocrine and hormone space um, have that, you know, they go to the office, the doctor tells them their labs are all perfect. And the patient's sitting there, well, I am struggling with my weight. I'm fatigued all the time. I'm depressed, all of these things. And all they hear is your labs are fine. There's nothing to do. And so I think, um, yeah, making, making a diagnosis can be really helpful, but really hearing the patient, um, and, uh, recognizing the problems, even if the labs are normal, there may still be problems that we need to address is super important. Definitely. And I think too, like that, you know, Hey, your labs are normal and, and go on your way situation tends to lead to people then seeking out, you know, alternative therapies. And, um, so, you know, I've, uh, I've heard from a lot of women that they'll go to like, um, you know, hormone at home, hormone testing, various supplements, you know, naturopathic stuff. And like, can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Of, like, is there any validity to any of that for PCOS or is it more so an issue of just not being heard, not being given the right kind of path or advice or resources. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to make, uh, an assessment of every single, um, naturopath, you know, because I think there's probably people doing different things. And I think 
Um, the big thing that we miss in traditional healthcare is that relationship that we've been talking about. And you're absolutely right. I feel like we play a role in driving patients to these alternative treatments that may benefit them, but some of them can be really harmful. You know, like we see patients with profound thyrotoxicosis, osteoporosis, cardiac arrhythmias um, due to inappropriate thyroid hormone. We see patients with iatrogenic adrenal insufficiency or their adrenals basically shut off because they've been given adrenal support supplements. And I say that in quotes um, that have animal steroid in them. And so when you're getting exogenous steroid from another source besides your own body, then your body thinks, Hey, I don't need to make it anymore. So I'm not going to. And so the body stops making steroid, which is necessary for life. And so if you ever were to stop some of those supplements, I mean, people can die from that if they have adrenal insufficiency. Um, we've seen people on whopping doses of iodine with thyrotoxicosis in the hospital who need to have a thyroidectomy because of, of those things. Um, we've had people super confused by at-home testing, like the Dutch test and other tests that are super common um, that are very expensive too. I mean, the evidence-based testing, um, you probably know this, it's far less expensive than some of these tests that are not um, validated. And so people are given all this confusing information that's being interpreted by people who aren't true experts. Um, and it can be very, very confusing for people. Um, but I think all of that has to do with just dissatisfaction with the traditional healthcare system and a lack of trust that um, our healthcare system, unfortunately, brews in people. And it's really not the patient's fault. I never blame the patient for ending up in these situations because at the end of the day, the patient is looking for solutions. And if we in the traditional healthcare system are not providing them with solutions that are satisfactory to them, and we're kind of pushing them out the door and making this entire situation just very inconvenient and expensive, then, I mean, what's a person to do? They're going to go look for an alternative because- Yeah. And I love the examples you gave around those supplements, because this is something that I say all the time, you know, to everybody- everybody listening. Um, but I think hearing it, like hearing those concrete examples of like, no, this, this particular thing can actually happen. I think it makes it more real for people. You were saying a word um, about the thyroid. Can you explain that word to people? I'm not even sure if I know that word. It was Thyrotoxicosis, is that what? Yes. What does that mean? Yeah. So thyrotoxicosis is hyperthyroidism. So overactive thyroid. And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. So there are like organic medical causes like Graves disease, or sometimes people have like a thyroid nodule that's toxic and secretes excessive thyroid hormone, um, or people can have um, thyroiditis after having a viral illness or postpartum. And so all of these different states and Graves disease is an autoimmune disease. So all of these different states cause excessive thyroid hormone. And I think most of us are um, fairly comfortable with the idea of hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid, which is far more common. And um, really a lot of people online talk about it a lot. Um, but 
as endocrinologists, we also see like all the other thyroid problems that happen. And um, a lot of people don't think about hyperthyroidism, which is kind of the opposite side of hypothyroid, um, but complication. So thyroid disease, like hyperthyroidism is super dangerous. Like people can die from, from hyperthyroidism. Um, I've seen patients with heart failure. Actually, one of the patients that um, was one of the reasons I went into endocrinology was a patient with Graves disease who um, I saw as an intern and he was hospitalized for um, thyrotoxicosis, thyroid storm. And he was a young man in his twenties and he died. And um, basically he had heart failure from his thyrotoxicosis. And um, I had the experience of really um, helping guide his fa family and his young mom through, through the death of her son. And it was so unfortunate because it's a very treatable condition, but, um, but if it's not treated, it can be deadly. Um, and so a lot of people who have hypothyroidism or who are struggling with fatigue or weight loss, they, they want excess thyroid hormone. They want thyroid hormone because a lot of people think that it will help them lose weight will help them with their attention, concentration, those types of things. But the problem is when you give somebody thyroid hormone supplementation and they don't have hypothyroidism, well, you're going to make them hyperthyroid or thyrotoxic. And we as endocrinologists know the dangers of that because guess who they call when somebody's thyrotoxicosis, when they're, when they're thyrotoxic or they have thyrotoxicosis, they call us. So we're very acutely aware of the complications of this, but, but, um, people who are hyperthyroid really, um, don't, other doctors don't necessarily get called unless they're like the ICU doc when the patient's super, super sick. But so we see, we see hyperthyroid a lot. And, um, so for us, what we always say is that the answer to your, your difficulty with weight loss and fatigue is not hyperthyroidism because it's not a safe solution. Um, because it can cause cardiac arrhythmias, it can cause heart failure, it can cause osteoporosis, it can cause anxiety, insomnia, all these things. Um, but what we see from the like functional medicine world is that people get put on a lot of supplements and oftentimes they come in super thyrotoxic with like basically an undetectable TSH. I mean, I probably see that once a week in my clinic. Wow. Um, people just on all these supplements that cause, um, hyperthyroidism that's really unsafe for the patients. Wow. That was really, that was really interesting. I think, um, I think that's good for a lot of people to hear because I do, I mean, absolutely. I think that is a common thing that people think is that my, you know, if I'm not, if I'm having a hard time losing weight, it's got to be something wrong with my thyroid. And then kind of when we latch onto an idea, then we look for somebody to validate it. I can't believe you see that once a week. That is wild to me. Yeah. It's, it's wild to me too. And what it, I get this question a lot because I definitely, I have my answer, but what, what are your thoughts for people that have hypothyroidism? I get the question a lot. Can I manage this through diet and lifestyle? What's, what's your answer to that? So I think that diet and lifestyle are super important to, to management of hypothyroidism because hypothyroidism is a mix of two things. It's a mix of labs and laboratory abnormalities like blood tests, but it's also symptoms, right? So hypothyroidism 
is associated with fatigue, weight gain, um, depressed mood, cold intolerance, um, hair thinning, all of these things. And so if we don't take a lifestyle focused approach to hypothyroidism, the likelihood that a patient is going to, going to resolve all of those symptoms if they're present is very unlikely. Um, so if all we do is give them a medication and they're super symptomatic, um, they're, they're probably not going to be optimized symptomatically because as we all know, our lifestyle plays a huge role in how we feel. So, um, so I think we do need to use lifestyle and diet as well as medications. Most patients with hypothyroidism will not normalize their thyroid without medications. Um, and most people don't have resolution. Like it's, it's most people don't get cured from hypothyroidism with lifestyle alone. Um, I will say I, you know, that's what, that's the textbook answer in clinical practice. Have I seen people who have been hypothyroid, hypothyroid, and then later somehow their labs became normal? maybe with lifestyle, maybe without. Yeah, I have a couple of times, like maybe a couple of times, less than a handful. Um, so I have seen stranger things happen, but for the vast majority of people, lifestyle alone is not going to reverse their hypothyroidism, but it will improve their symptoms. Yeah, that's good to know. I think sometimes people like feel like it's like a personal failure or something if they can't manage it on their own. Um, but yeah, I've lived with Hashimoto's since I was like 12 years old. I feel like I want to have a whole conversation. I want to have a consult with you because <laughs> I mean, so much of what you're saying is sparking a lot of, um, a lot in, a lot in me, but, um, I think that's interesting because for women with PCOS, there can be increased risk of thyroid problems. Is that correct? Yeah, we do see, um, people with like hormonal issues <laughs> often have multiple. And then the other thing that increases the risk of hypothyroidism is genetics. Mm -hmm. So I have Hashimoto's too. And so, but, so, but I don't have thyroiditis. So I have like normal thyroid labs, but I have positive antibodies. And the only reason I checked is because both of my parents um, have Hashimoto's. And so I thought, well, maybe I should check more frequently. I should check my TSH more frequently if I do have elevated antibodies. And so, um, so I think, um, so genetics is super common, um, cause usually on the female side, like mom, sisters, aunts, cousins, um, may all have Hashimoto's and, um, other autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. So like, if you have type one diabetes or you have lupus or something like that, those are bigger, um, uh, correlations with, uh, or bigger risk factors for having Hashimoto's as well. Cool. And you mentioned that you had kind of like your own lifestyle transformation. Was that related to your thyroid or is that related to something else? No, it was, it was something else. So in 20, um, 2018, my son was born <laughs> four now, and, um, I was working in a really, really busy private practice. And it was actually one of the busiest, if not the busiest endocrinology pra private practices in the country. Um, 
we, that clinic sees like 500 patients a day. I was seeing easily 30 plus patients a day. Oh my God. And I was a new, well, it was my second child, but I was a new mom with a newborn at home and working full-time in this super busy clinic. And I was just running myself ragged and my son was falling off his growth curve because I couldn't really pump at work. And it was just, um, a really challenging time in, in mine and my family's life. And so, um, I, I started having like joint pains in, in my knees and I was like, I'm 32. Why is this happening? I don't, I shouldn't feel this tired and in pain all the time and all of those things. And at the same time, we had an au pair who, who had moved in with us and she is a nutritionist from Brazil and she's plant-based. Wow. And so <laughs> we started learning a lot about plant-based diet and um, she's just an amazing person. And she was, you know, I think prior to that, my relationship with diets had been like this restrictive idea about eating. And I just didn't want to do that to my own mental health. And so I, that was kind of what, what my relationship with, with diet dieting had been. And so, but I watched her and she was just not restricting it at all. Like she was happy to eat what she ate. She didn't, she didn't drink alcohol. She, she's a Seventh-day Adventist. She didn't drink alcohol. She didn't drink caffeine, but it was nothing, nothing was like restrictive. It was all about, um, valuing herself. Mm -hmm. right? It was like valuing herself and being happy in the moment. And she, she was just like such a positive, um, just had such positive energy and vibes and she was taking care of my kids and we just loved having her around. And so I was feeling really not my best. And then, um, I started having migraines and I've had, I had migraines for a long time, but they got very severe, like 72 hour duration migraines, um, multiple times a week. So I was almost like having a migraine more than I wasn't having a migraine and, here I was like just starting my career. I have a husband, two kids. And I was just like, this is not my life. Like, this is not how my life is going to go. Um, and at the same time, I was, I was trying to leave that practice because I knew that wasn't, um, that wasn't helping things. And so one day <laughs> I woke up having a headache, couldn't stop throwing up. I, I had this like I was seeing a neurologist at the time and I had this like vagal nerve stimulator, all these kind of crazy things to try to manage these migraines. And I could not, like, I could not stop throwing up. I know that's disgusting, but so I would go to my neurologist's office, still like a mess. And he had to put this like catheter up my nose to have a focal lidocaine, like like a, not ablation, but like he basically had to put lidocaine at the focus of the migraine. And that made it stop finally after like, you know, 10 hours of not being able to do anything. And so at that point I was like, okay, it's time to either. And they wanted to put me on this like monthly medication. And I just was like, I don't want to go down that path. I don't want to just go down that path. And so I want to see what I can do in my lifestyle to improve things. Because 
honestly, I was, I had started eating plant-based and I I wasn't like, I think I was living like a standard American life. You know, I was being kind of like all my other colleagues were, but then I really started prioritizing sleep. I started adding in meditation because I like, as I was leaving that job, I had a lot of anxiety around it. So I was having trouble sleeping, um, transform my diet. And over the next few years, I cut out caffeine. I cut out all alcohol, um, really worked on exercise and changing my mindset. I became a yoga instructor that same oh. year um, because I just really knew that there was so much more to life. And the more I did that was positive and healthy for myself, the more I saw the benefit to not just me, but my whole family. And, and that's when I got board certified in lifestyle medicine too, because I thought, wow, there's so much here that we are missing. Like I'm a board certified endocrinologist. And I feel like I'm now j- just learning about nutrition through all these other um, out of the box trainings, you know, for myself and for, for my patients. And so, um, yeah, so I, I really transformed my lifestyle. That was 2019. My husband did too. And my husband had gained all the baby weight. And so he lost that. And then, um, you know, health is contagious. A lot of my friends went, started eating a plant-based diet. And when I say plant-based diet, I don't mean like everyone has to be a vegan or anything like that, but just eating, you know, healthy foods, fruits, veggies, whole grains, beans, lentils, those things, making those a large part of your diet. Um, and you know, we just, found that this was so valuable, not just to my patients, but to our family and my community. And um, yeah, so that was the big life transformation that happened for me. And I think it's been such a positive, um, positive transformation that has helped not just me, but so many other people too. That's a beautiful story. That's incredible. Um, and so many things stand out to me because it's, it's like, wow, you know, like you said, you're a board certified endocrinologist and you had found yourself like you, living the typical American life. And, and like, this is something I, I say all the time because it's like, I think to be, to be healthy, it's, it's kind of like you got to carve your own path mm-hmm. um, because the path that's carved for us a lot of the times is not laid out, you know, with our best interests in mind. Um, I also love what you said about valuing yourself, that when we value ourselves, the rest just kind of natural, naturally follows suit. Um, that's, that's just so powerful. I'm, that's incredible. And it's, it's interesting. Cause I think, I don't know the story, Sandra's story, my story, your story, it's all echoes of like, we were healthcare providers found ourselves kind of in an unhealthy environment, both mentally and physically and emotionally. And then that was just not not in alignment with, with our values. And so you, you created your own, um, story of health. That's beautiful. Wow. I think it's like being comfortable being the odd man out too, because, you know, you, you go out and everybody's like, you know, doing, and it's fine. I mean, everybody can do whatever they want to do, but for me, it's, all of a sudden it became easy to be like, no, I I really don't, I don't want a glass of wine. Like, no, I don't want to eat that because I just feel so good. You know, I I don't want to sacrifice the feeling that I have because, um, 
because I'm afraid of what somebody else is going to think of me. It just doesn't matter anymore. And I think motherhood changes perspectives on that too, because I think for me, I don't know that I valued myself that much, honestly, until I became a mom. And I think we think before I became a mom, I thought of motherhood as this whole like martyrdom, you give yourself up. And then I became a mom and my, my first child is a little girl. And I was like, no, 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 I am so important because I am everything to this child. And if I don't take care of myself, how the heck is she going to know that she needs to take care of herself? Absolutely. And that I think, um, really transformed my mindset a lot as well. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, this is really the bigger theme of like my whole membership program is it's kind of about like, as women be, being strong in who we are, because that's, I mean, we have the power to change the world. Um, but I agree with you around, around motherhood. I, I felt the same way. I thought everybody was telling me I was going to like lose, lose so much, or you, you know, you just wait, right? Like those things people would say. And I, I found the opposite. I found like, oh my God, my daughter came into the world and I was like, it's time for, it's time to step it up. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, create something and show her what's what's possible, and that yeah, that's I think we view health very similarly as it's kind of the foundation for everything. Um, everything starts from from it, and so like when you're talking about health with your your patients, like what do you think are like kind of three the three biggest things or the three things to start with or you know, how can people start to make change in, in their lives um, in a way that feels good to them? Yeah, I think, um, I think assessing a patient's mental health and where they are is super, super important because everybody is in different seasons of life and everybody is going through different things. And, you know, in our patients with diabetes, for example, um, sometimes like for example, I'll give you a patient example because I think yeah. it'll be easiest to, to, to demonstrate what I'm trying to say that way. But I had, I had this patient that was referred to me. She was like the 60 year old lady who was on boatloads of insulin and um, A1C was rising and her blood sugars just couldn't, couldn't be controlled. And so she came to see me after having diabetes for decades. And, you know, I was just doing a history and and talking to her about her day-to-day life. And I found out this lady is severely depressed and the PCP had just had been going up on her insulin and going up on her insulin. And I was like, okay, so how often do you take your insulin? And (laughs) it's such a simple question, but it's a question that we need to ask because one, if insulin sucks to take, right? So like a lot of patients don't take it how it's prescribed. But in a patient who's severely depressed, of course, they're not going to be taking it or it's highly unlikely that they're going to be taking it as it's prescribed. Yeah. If they're, they have like, if they're having like thoughts of suicide, you know? And so um, she's like, no, I'm not taking it. I'm like, well, did anyone ever ask you if you're taking it? Because like you could see in her history that the, the dose just kept going up and she's like, no, I'm like, okay, well, what would make this easier for you? And we ended up, um, and I was like, are you actually checking your blood sugar at all? And she's like, well, no. I'm like, well, yeah, it, I understand that. And so 
we ended up getting her depression meds figured out and she's in therapy and all of those things. And then we changed her from once, like she was on insulin multiple times a day, changed her to a once a week injection and put her on a CGM so that she could actually see how her blood sugar was doing more easily without having to, to prick her own finger. And I kid you not within three months, her A1C went from like over 10 to less than six. And so I think really understanding a patient's and, and of course she felt happier, right? She felt way better because now she's not having to poke herself all the time and she's not having to take insulin injections all the time and having to worry about hypoglycemia because I'm actually glad she wasn't taking the doses of insulin she'd been prescribed because she would have probably died, you know, and so from hypoglycemia. And so I think really assessing a patient's mental health and where, where they are on their journey is really, really important. And that needs to be the first step, because if you don't know that, then you might as well like <laughs> throw your recommendations out the window, because if it's not patient centered, then the compliance is going to be low. Um, and it's just not going to be what's best for your patient. Um, and then on all of my that's a big part of, of the, the first visit. And I kind of tailor things based on that because some patients are not ready to talk about, you know, other things besides, you know, just where they are at that moment in time. But we also talk a lot about nutrition. I focus a lot on sleep. Sleep is, an, yeah, sleep is a, yeah, it's such a foundational thing. And I don't think it's, maybe this is changing, but I don't think it's discussed enough in um, the clinic. Like I said, it's just so fast paced usually. But so many, I would say mo more often than not, I see people with very disordered sleep yeah. and they don't even know. And I think as healthcare providers, we take for granted um, knowing what sleep hygiene is. Yeah. And so um, really educating patients on sleep hygiene. I had one patient who had um, pretty significant PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. and um, we talked a lot about sleep and I, you know, sometimes I tell my patients, you're going to think I'm silly because you're telling me about one thing. And I'm kind of telling you something that isn't a direct, um, you know, fix to what your, what your, what your complaint is, but this is something that we all need to do for our overall health. It may fix it. It may fix all of your like agitation and irritability with your spouse. It may fix it all, or it may not. But we have to do, we have to fix the sleep first to, to see if we really do need anything else. And there are so many people who we address sleep first and they come back within, you know, a couple of weeks, just feeling so much better. Maybe not all of their problems are solved just by that. Um, but, but they start to feel so much better. It's, it's so true. I mean, I totally agree. Um, if, if you start making nutrition changes, a lot of the, if the sleep isn't good, a lot of the time it, it doesn't even really kick in. And, and it's also harder because you're tired. And I think a lot of people don't even realize how tired they are because they're always tired. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. um, <laughs> they don't so know that that's not normal. Yeah. I talk about sleep all the time. And, um, you know, at clinic, I, I worked in great clinics too. And so we had the ability to refer to sleep medicine 
some clients I have though, they might live in an area where like that's not even available. And so then we we've shift the conversation to the sleep hygiene and exact, that's the exact response. What, what is sleep hygiene? Um, and it's so many simple things in our environments that can have such a profound impact on how we feel in our metabolic health. And like when you're talking to somebody, is there a certain, you know, amount of sleep that is ideal? Does it depend on the person? Um, I'd love to know kind of how, how you phase phrase that and like what the process is in improving sleep. Yeah. So um, different people have different things. Like sometimes people have sleep duration, which is just super short, like somebody sleeping four hours a night. Right. And so right. We, we like people to, you know, most people need on average seven to nine hours of sleep. There are people who, you know, are on either end of the bell curve of that may need a little bit more, a little bit less. Um, but most people are in that seven to nine hour time frame. Um, but we also want to make sure people are getting restful sleep. Like, do you feel rested when you wake up? And if the answer is no, well, we need to be assessing for like sleep apnea, right? A lot of our patients with diabetes struggle with obesity as well, or with thyroid disease. And so, um, that's a risk factor for, um, sleep apnea, but even lean, normal people, with normal BMI can have sleep apnea. Um, are they waking up all night because they have to pee? Are they drinking like a you know, a whole thing, a, a whole Yeti of water right before they go to bed and they're having to wake up to go pee three times and that that's disrupting their sleep. Are they um, looking at, I think this is a more common than not one. Are they looking at their phone and not falling asleep because of the blue light emission from the phone or the TV screen or computer? I mean, some people are working really late at night or watching TV in bed. Um, so really assessing, you know, what is the issue with sleep and what can we do to address it? I think most people, myself included, sometimes like could probably work on their sleep hygiene. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it's a total work in progress, right? Like we see people who fix it and they're feeling good and then they start to feel bad again because, you know, they started watching TV again or they started, you know, doing things differently. So it's, you know, all of these, I think in chronic conditions, like you and I both treat, um, it's not like a fix it and quit it, right? Like right. always life happens and life is constantly changing. There's new stressors, there's new complexities. There's, you know, we all fall off the wagon in one way or another sometimes. And so really having a team that can support you through all of those things, um, whatever it may be, I think is super important for, you know, long-term health maintenance, because it's not like a, you go to the doctor once a year and, and then everything gets fixed. It just doesn't work like that. Right. Yeah. I like how you, how you phrase that because it is true. It's, it's a constant evolution and just like having little reminders, like just, just to check in with things. Oh, how is my sleep? Oh, how is my activity? How am I eating? How's my stress? Just kind of constantly cycling through mm -hmm. um, is big. But I like that you said, I want, I just wanted to hear you say seven to nine hours because sometimes people will say, like, well, I, I do fine with six. And I'm like, do you though? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We don't even know like how much better. I always I tell people just to work on increasing it by maybe 20 minutes a night if you can mm -hmm. just, you know, slowly, but it's so, it's so massive. It's yeah. So um, yeah, it's huge. And I think 
The other thing is people have this idea, like if I sleep, then I'm decreasing my productivity. And that's just not true. Like if you can be energetic and in a good mood because you slept more, I can guarantee your productivity is going to be better and you're going to be able to get more things done in a shorter amount of time. And I have proven that to myself thousands and thousands of times, you know, it's so true. And so I think that idea that like, I don't have enough time to sleep, um, is one of those kind of incorrect ways of thinking that get people off track. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of the time in conversations too, it's, um, it's kind of like we cling to that time when we're like laying in bed, looking at our phone, like, oh my gosh, this is my time. And so like looking at the whole day and thinking about how can I create more, more moments that feel like they're for me, mm-hmm. you know, through like, you know, a, be- a bedtime routine, a skincare routine, more breaks during the day um, so that, you know, our me time isn't just like, let me scroll, you know, TikTok or whatever. And then we wake up exhausted and like do it all over again. So um, I'm glad you brought that up. Very cool. Yeah. I think, I feel like this has been a great conversation and I, you know, I kind of just let it go where it was going to go, but I think we had some interesting talk around thyroid health, which, which was different and just around like lifestyle and the importance of it. And, um, you know, back to kind of, uh, sleep and, and the importance of having good relationships with your providers. Cause I think it is, it's very true to have that good relationship, um, where the advice can be individualized and you can be yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I love this conversation. I thought it was, it was great. And I think we touched upon a lot of things that um, maybe people don't hear about all the time. Yeah. So if you want to follow Dr. T on Instagram, what's your Instagram handle? Yeah, it's just my name. It's Dr. Like D-R Arthi Thangadu. So D-R-A-R-T-I-T-H-A-N-G-U-D-U. Cool. I'll also put that in the um, show notes for this episode. And thank you so much for being here and having this amazing conversation and um, sharing so much of your heart and your mind. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Take care. You too.